Our Father in heaven, we seek your face this morning as we uh, seek to be taught by your word and to know your counsel and your will, Father. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move mightily on me that I might speak your words and that uh, the Holy Spirit would speak to me or speak to me and through me to these people, Lord. I ask that they would be attentive, Lord, that you'd uh, shake off their tiredness and that uh, you'd give them ears to hear and eyes to see your truth, Father. And may your Holy Spirit be upon all of us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we're mostly going to be in the uh, book of Hebrews this morning. Let's start off. We're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Um, pastor recently did a, he called it a flyover of the book of Hebrews. as a real synopsis of the book of Hebrews. Kind of moved quickly through that uh, book. Um, we're going to specifically look at a couple of just really important and kind of hotly debated and passages in Hebrews. Um, Pastor, I think uh, he wanted to point out in his lesson the importance of viewing the book of Hebrews as being written by Paul. And I really have to identify with that and say that that is a very important thing. And I do believe that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, it's just very important that you know, we see this book, which has just some of the deepest theology of the New Testament and teaches so much about the deity of Christ and the person of Christ and the fulfillment of what he did as being from an apostolic origin. Um, and as Jamie said, I'm a little bit of a studier, a researcher. And so I wanted to read you something because I think that history has something to say that's it's rather important about the uh, epistle to the Hebrews and that it was written by Paul. And this kind of comes from... Uh, kind of manuscript history and manuscript witness. Um, this may be something that might be new to you, but this is, uh, I'm going to read from the preface to a edition of the Greek New Testament called the, Byzant the Greek New Testament according to the Byzantine text form. Hopefully the Byzantine text form would mean something to you. The Byzantine text is the text that underlies the uh, New Testament in the King James Version. And it's maybe called the majority text, okay, because it's the majority of readings majority of manuscripts represent all the same readings. And so this, uh, this text is, you know, from the, is, you know, those manuscripts. Um, but let me read to you a little bit about what this compiler said about the order of the canonical books. It says, the individual manuscripts present in the New Testament books in various arrangements, nevertheless, a particular Greek canonical order seems to have been popular during early transmissional history. This order is partially evidenced within various early papyri and manuscript and occurs in the 4th century festal letter of Athanasius. Uh, 367, Athanasius was like the stalwart defender of, of uh, the Christian faith of the deity of Christ against Arianus. And this, or, this list of canonical books is also attributed to the Laodicean Council in 360 and 360. To 363. The present edition reproduces the early canonical order for the Greek New Testament books. And it goes on, says, the individual books within each category form the, follow the familiar order, except that of the Pauline epistles. Hebrews stands between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, intentionally separating Paul's local church epistles from those written to individuals. 
don't know if that's something that many of you knew, but in the majority of Greek New Testament manuscripts, the epistle to Hebrews isn't at the end of the Pauline epistles. It's actually between Thessalonians and Timothy. Um, and why that's important, let me read, just as a second witness, I'm going to read a passage out, or a quote from Professor Caspar Rene Gregory. This would have been written about 1907. It says, he's in, this is from uh, Canon Text of the New Testament, page 467. It says, the order in which we place the books of the New Testament is not a matter of indifference. The Greek order is that which places the epistle to Hebrews between Thessalonians and Timothy, and that is the order to which we should hold. The Latin order places Hebrews after Philemon, but we must keep to the old order or we shall have the New Testament turned upside down. Um, and so what seems to have happened in history is on the authority of one man, Jerome, who made the Latin Vulgate translation, he didn't believe Paul wrote Hebrews. And so rather than having it in the middle of the Pauline epistles, he put it at the end. So they could kind of go both ways. You could see it as Pauline or you could see it as one of the general epistles. But if the epistle to the Hebrews is in the middle of the Pauline epistles, then it's very clear that it's unmistakable as being of Pauline origin, that it came from the pen of Paul. And it's interesting to note that in all the manuscript history of the New, of the New Testament, there's no other order of the Pauline epistles short of what we find in our Bible. Other than you know, the change in Hebrews, there's no other variance. So that tells me that very early, someone with the authority to do so bound the epistles of Paul together and put them in the order that we presently have them. And it's endured from then until now, um, accepting Hebrews. And so you know, that's a very important witness, I think, to the authority of the epistles of Paul, that they are scripture, and especially that of Hebrews. So let us... Uh, Turn to Hebrews 10, and uh, read Hebrews 10, 21 to 25. Hear the words of the Lord. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Amen. The title of this lesson is The Visible and the Invisible Church. And in these verses, I think that we have a very beautiful picture of what the church should look like. We have Jesus Christ as the head, the high priest of the church. And then we have a body of believers who are steadfast, having full assurance of the faith, with nothing wavering. And they are together wholly committed to each other. That they're here to encourage, to uplift, to admonish one another. And that also that speaks of humility within the body. That, you know, if I know that, you know, maybe I see my brother stumbling, you know, that I can go to him and say, hey, you know, I can admonish him and, you know, see 
an area that maybe you know he's he's falling away from but knowing that he has the humility that he'll accept that and that's that's just that's what the body should be that's what the church should be that's the visible church as it were and so as we look um, at the church, I think it's also just very, very important that we understand that contrary to what so much of the church sees today in uh, what you might call dispensational theology, that they see that, you know, there was Old Testament Israel, and now God has this new creation, this new idea that's the church. And, you know, they don't see any continuity between the two. And I see that, you know, I mean, in dispensationalism, it's so weird. You know, you have the church is just this temporary idea, and then it's all going to go back to Israel. But, you know, it's, it's Israel, and it has always been Israel. Um, let's look for some confirmation on that. Turn, if you would, just quickly over to Acts uh, 7. So this would be Stephen speaking, Acts seven thirty-eight. <clears throat> he says, this is he... That was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers to receive the lively oracles to give unto us. So he's speaking of Moses in the context. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. So Christ was in the church in the wilderness. And the church in the wilderness is the same church that we have today. The, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with it, but, you know, the word in Greek translated as church is ekklesia, and it means assembly or gathering together, the congregation. And, you know, we see assembly, congregation in the Old Testament, and we see church in the New Testament. It's, it's really the same concept. It's the same body. It's the same. Um, Israel was the church, and the church is Israel. You know, we are the congregation of the Church of Israel. It's the same thing. They're not, they're not separate. And so we, we need to see continuity there. Um, turning back to Hebrews. Hebrews tells us much the same thing. And Hebrews 2, it's quoting from uh, Psalms 22, verse 2. In uh, verse 12, Hebrews 2, verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And it's the words of Christ. And he's, you know, when, when David wrote those words in the 22nd Psalm, he would have had, you know, Israel in view, that that was the congregation. And we see in the, in the you know, time of Christ that, you know, that, that's the church. And they're, they're one and the same. We have to see that continuity to understand who the church is, who that visible church, the body of Christ is. Um, and so once we, I think once you understand that, that, you know, the church is Israel. Israel is the church. It's so important to, un to understand that covenantal view that, you know, the church was not a new idea that God had. It's, it's always been the body of Christ in Israel. Um, turn with me to Corinthians. I think that Corinthians, uh, Paul's really, as he goes through this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we'll read verses 1 to 6 here in Paul's really relying on us having that understanding that Israel is the church and that the church of Israel is Israel. That uh, he's bringing home and making a hard point to, to the believers. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. 
It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. So the point of what Paul is saying here is that in the wilderness, the children of Israel drunk of the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. And you know, to us in identity, I'd really got a hammer on verse 1 there. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So in that, you know, let's just, as we're identity believers here, we believe that we are the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's just pause on that and say that, you know, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, a Gentile church as we would have it, but he tells them that their fathers passed through the sea and were part of the Exodus. So, um, but important to note here is you look at the gifts, the sacraments that Paul outlines as Israel in the wilderness having partaken of. Um, and what did he say? He says that they were all baptized uh, it says unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And some people might highlight that and say, well, it's not, they weren't baptized unto Christ. But Moses is the servant of God. And to be baptized unto or by him is to be baptized into, into God. Amen. You know, Paul is certainly not making a distinction that um, Moses is separate from God or that he did this on his own accord. Moses was the servant and follower of God. You know, it would be the same as saying that the law of Moses it's different from the law of God. Though we might have the title law of Moses, it should certainly be considered that the law of Moses is the law of God. For Moses thundered forth the words of God. And so we see that they, they had baptism in Israel from a very early point. The same sacraments that we would identify ourselves in the church as having. They ate of the bread from heaven and they drank of that spiritual rock, which was Christ. They essentially partook of, in a manner of speaking, the blood of, of communion. And I think that it's in verse 16, if you look over, it's really, I think that's where what Paul is connecting this to. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He's saying that Israel in the wilderness had and partook of the same sacraments that we do. And so... Let's be warned that as Israel, many of them that came out of the wilderness had no faith and were destroyed in the wilderness, that do not think that because we have those sacraments that we cannot fall away or that we are, you know, communion is not a talisman. When you come here once or twice a year, you can't come here and say, oh, I got communion, I'm, I'm good to go, I can... Just, you know, come to church six months later from now and be fine. You know, Christ said, your fathers ate the bread from heaven and are dead. It's, it's not just the, the physical eating of, of something. You have to spiritually partake of the faith in Christ.
I also, maybe I shouldn't go down. This might be a little bit of a bunny trail here. <laughs> but uh, I, I hear a lot of you know, people that come to the church here and are really astounded by the children that we have and the, you know, the growth and you know, the, the lively little faces and how many children we have. And I, I kind of liken it to, but you know, then uh, they learn about our doctrine a little bit more. They, they say they're almost terrified that we practice infant baptism. And, um, you know, it's, it says here that they were all baptized in the water and in the, in the cloud and in the sea. And so just to, you know, people say, well, infant baptism is in the Bible. Well, this is the whole assembly of Israel. You can argue about one household in the book of Acts, whether there were infants in it or not. But I don't think you can argue that in a whole nation there weren't a couple infants, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. So, um, what I'm, what I meant to say there is that you know people come into the assembly and they they love to see our children, but then they they can condemn and are offended by our practice in that. And I think it, just take it to heart. You think about this: is that the reason that we have children here, the reason that we believe and are confident that we can raise children. It's simply because we believe in the promises of God. That the covenant that he made with Abraham is to us and to our children. And as a result of that, you know, in the dispensational world, to say, oh, no, we don't want to have children. The world's going to come to an end, and it's going to be a terrifying and terrible thing. But we can have faith that God is faithful, that he will preserve us and our children and let us, you know, Raise our children built upon that confidence that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us and to our children. <clears throat> now that we've looked at 1 Corinthians and understand the connection between Israel and the church, I want to, to go forward in Hebrews 10 and read the rest of the read towards the end of the chapter here because there's some terrifying words that follow in Hebrews 10 there. And that's, that's really where I want to, to land. And I want to ask the question. So you have Israel, the church, the congregation of the wilderness, the church that God said, you know, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But a question for you. If someone is born into Israel, if someone is born into a church, into a church family. Does that birth, does that, you know, membership in an outward body, does it guarantee to them that they are part of what we might call the invisible church? The church who only God knows, the people who are, whose names are written in the book of life. That's the question I want to ask you. Let's read on in Hebrews 10. And we need to think about who this is speaking to. So, beginning in verse 26. <clears throat> For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. I hope that's terrifying words and that you really think about it, because it's yeah, that's scary. 
But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now in verse 26, where it says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. I don't want to to come away too fearful of that. um, Because we all sin. The question is whether you will seek repentance and have a soft heart after that sin. I believe that verse 29 really outlines to us that the, the sin, the willful sin that he is... Paul is speaking of is apostasy. That's what we see in verse 29 there. Um, And, you know, as to, you know, don't think that, in a sense, all sin that we commit as believers, I mean, we so earnestly strive not to, but it will happen. I know that I fall daily. You know, I lose my temper at work. I, you know, Lust and greed and, you know, things enter into our hearts. We always, you know, I just continue to seek to mortify that, to overcome it. You know, David, he sinned willfully. You can't say that he didn't make a conscious decision that, you know, to go and ask, you know, send messengers to bring Bathsheba into his house. You know, so he willfully committed adultery and murder, but he repented. And so that willful sin, don't, don't lose hope that just because you fell, that now, you know, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. The, the words here spoken are specifically related to, to verse 29 there, where it says, you know, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God. Um, these, this passage, as well as Hebrews uh, 6, 4 to 6, are, are some, uh, is a hard text. Um, and they, they raise a lot of debate and question um, within you know, theological systems of, of scriptural interpretation. Um, and I am you know, coming from what you might call a Calvinist or Reformed view as I look at this. Um, but they, these passages raise, raise the question and say, that you might say is, can a Christian lose salvation? Um, because as you read through verse 29 there, in, you know, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. And so, you know, that, that seems to say that, you know, this person that P- Paul is writing about in this uh, state of apostasy that... They were sanctified by the blood of the covenant, and that you know that now they have gone away, and that their salvation was is lost, and that he didn't have security, or didn't have an enduring faith. Um, and so, to that, I let's see, find it. Uh, 
that something. Huh? Maybe I don't. All right, I'll speak for it anyway. So in, in Reformed view, I believe that uh, we have something that we would call a tenant, which would be perseverance of the saints. And that is that, that God knows who his elect are. And that as we saw in, in Israel, that you know, there are those whom, whom God knows, whom he's foreordained. If we look at um, Romans 9... In fact, let's just turn there. Let's turn to Romans 9. I know Jamie read this last night also, but... And it may be a well-used passage of this feast, but we'll, we'll remember it then, right? Says, uh, beginning in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, who pertain, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promise. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And that verse, verse 6, really outlines what I'm trying to tell you this morning. Is that there's Israel, the visible body, those who are descendants. But not all that are within that household will also be truly of Israel, of the elect. There will be some who will be sifted. In the eyes of our father Isaac, he had two sons. And, you know, very much to, he wanted Esau to be the firstborn. He wanted him to be the inheritor. But God, according to the purposes of election, had a different plan. He knew that Jacob would be faithful and that Jacob would raise up a great house and that Jacob would have a soft heart towards God and he would seek to serve him where Esau was only a fornicator and did not seek to, to love and to serve God. Turning back to Hebrews 10 and specifically looking at the, the sanctification there. Um, look at verses... 10 and 14 in Hebrews 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What is that verse telling us? It's that those who are sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ are once and for all sanctified. That those who truly believe that God has called into sanctification are once purified forever, for all. Look at same thing in verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. In John 10, it's, it's so well pointed out in the words of Christ. You know, I know my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and I will not lose one. That is what we would call preservation of the saints. And so in verse 29, we see this, that, you know, as I said, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. I want to look at another place where sanctification is used. Look at 1 Corinthians 
7, if you will. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. It's an interesting passage here. It says, and this is speaking of uh, a couple, a uh, married couple, that the wife or the husband has come to, to being a believer, but the other spouse in that relationship is not. And so Paul's speaking to that situation. Uh, let's begin in verse 13, actually. And it says, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. So I think that the, the sanctification that we see in Hebrews 10.29 is much the same sort of degree of sanctification. That someone who is in the church, someone who hears the word of God, they are set apart. They are different from someone who has not. And in a way, it actually brings them all the more into the, a high degree of judgment that if they do not accept. And, you know, no one, I think, would say that the sanctification that Paul writes of in Corinthians there, that that guarantees salvation to an unbelieving spouse. No one would, would say that. And so it's, it's that same degree that, you know, they have the witness. They are set apart that they have heard the truth. But it's still on them whether that really takes root in their life. So it is that person who bodily is in, in the church, bodily is part of Israel, but who still hasn't let the faith truly take root in themselves that Hebrews 10 is speaking to in the end here. And so let us be very concerned and look at our own hearts. And... For we do not want to be the person who, you know, Jonathan Edwards took his famous sermon line from verse 31. You know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, you don't want to be that person. So Amen. take heart and, you know, seek the Lord. Don't, don't let willful sin take root in your life. Let's then, I think, uh, also look at uh, Hebrews 6. Because it's, it's really just a companion passage to Hebrews 10. Let's take the time to read that also, because it's, it's very much the same message. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. And so many people that want to talk about this passage, they, they say that it's, it's hypothetical. That it's to say that, well, he's putting it there as a warning, but it can't actually happen. That you can't actually, you know, be a blood-washed part of the elect and then fall away. Or you can't be in, I should say, you can't be in the body of the church and then fall away. But I've seen it. I've seen people 
even up here who gave lessons, who are no longer with us, who went away. And so I don't think that you can say it's hypothetical. It's, it's real. You have to acknowledge that it happens. That there are some who have professed faith that have been in this church, that have walked among us. Friends and you know, people who loudly confessed and proclaimed a faith. But you know, not only did they go away from you know, the teachings that we have of who Israel is, but you know, they just totally shipwrecked and don't even acknowledge Christ as, as Savior anymore. And it's terrifying, right? And it, it's painful. Amen. And you know, don't stand here like Israel and say, you know, we came out of Egypt, we're saved, and you know, don't be haughty. Don't tempt the Lord. Amen. It's real. And you know, these people, it says, again, you know, I think that it's so important, like in Corinthians, you can compare this. It says, uh, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. Well, think about Israel in the wilderness. Enlightened. Were they not? Did they not, in the most real sense, witness the power of salvation that was offered through God? You know, how much did he overcome all the gods of Egypt? How greatly? He is, he is a great deliverer, a great savior. They witnessed that. They, they could not deny the truth. And the, the, the God is real. He's very real. They... It says, uh, and they tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Did Israel partake? Did they taste of the heavenly gift? They had the manna from heaven. They had water coming out of rocks, living water coming out of the rock. They drunk of that, of that spiritual water, of that blood. You know, they were sanctified by the blood of the, of the Lamb. That's how they got out of Egypt, right? They were made partakers of, of that covenant. But they did not believe. They had the Holy Ghost right over them in a cloud of fire by night and a cloud by day. You cannot say that those people were not partakers of the Holy Ghost. They were. And they tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. You know, they had the Ten Commandments given to them, the very word of God. They saw the thunders and the lightnings on the mountains. And yet... God was not well pleased with them for their unbelief. You know, we cannot... This is for our example, as it said in Corinthians. We cannot look away from that and think that, well, that was Israel in the Old Testament. You know, and if I was there, there's no way that I wouldn't have had the faith and wouldn't have believed. It can happen to you. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. And so, you know, again, I, I want to say that this, this isn't a hypothetical situation. In verse 6, there's a lot of people who would hang the argument on the word if there. They'd say, you know, if this could happen, but it, but it can't actually happen. There, there won't be people ever who confess, to, confess Christ and then turn away. It's, it's a weak argument. I know, you know, I'm not saying that the word if shouldn't be there. But if you, if you look at the Greek text, it's, the Greek word there is K, and it means and. It's used everywhere where you see an and in our English text. It's, it's that word. It's, so, it's, the if is saying, you know, if these people should fall away, but it's also an and they shall fall away. 
to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Going on further, it says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Amen. What does that remind you of in the, the words of Christ? I hope that that stirs up a story, a parable. Does it not? The parable of the sower, right? Can you see that? that that's what Paul is alluding to here? The thorny ground, right? That some seed fell upon thorny ground. And that ground, because it was full of thorns, when that seed sprouted up, the thorns choked it out because it had no life in itself. And so this, this warning is that which we also would see in the parable of the sower, that let not, you know, the, you are that ground. Each one of you is your own parcel of ground. And the seed of the word has been given to you. And in many ways, it's up to you to water that, to feed that seed, or to weed out the thorns in your life. If you have, you know, things that are, that are pulling you away, those are your thorns. If you have bad friends that are pulling you in a different direction, those are the thorns that are going to choke out your faith if you don't get rid of them. So, just really want to admonish you. Make sure that in the parable of the sower, you are not that stony ground. Amen. You are not the thorny ground. Be the fruitful ground. Let the word take root in your life. So I want to give you kind of a, some, some strategies to, to, to make sure that that happens for each of you and for your children. Um, Looking back, looking at Hebrews 10, verse 25, I don't think that it's, it's any coincidence at all that that stern warning that we see in Hebrews 10, 27 to 29 there, that it's preceded by an admonition. And that admonition is given to us to keep that from happening, to keep you from being the one who forsakes the blood of the covenant. And that admonition is simply... Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. So if you don't want to be stony ground, then what do you need to do? You need to fellowship. Amen. You need to have the word of God broken out to you. Amen. You need to be in a body. I know that, you know, there's small bodies around. You know, it doesn't have to be just here, but... Make sure that you are not forsaking the assembling yourselves together. Because, you know, that exhortation that we get from fellow believers is so important. Amen. You know, we work six days a week, and you get so wrapped up in anything. And if you don't take time out of one day to think about what else there is besides just getting up and going to work and making money to pay your bills, yeah. you'll be lost. You'll fall away. Second thing is uh, verse 26. For if we sin willfully. And you know, like I said, I know that each one of us will fall. Each one of us will sin. But if you do not confront that sin. If you do not repent of it. And you 
begin to love that sin more than you love Christ, if you let it really take hold in you, and to the point where you love your sin, you love that pleasure, whatever it is, whatever the idol of your heart is, if you begin to love that more than you love the gospel, then you will go down and you'll continue and you'll end up the person, verse 29, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. Looking back to uh, Corinthians 10, there's, you know, the spoke of Israel and it looks at the things that they did. So it's, uh, in verse 6, 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things are for example, for our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. You know, that's the sin in your heart. Don't spend your time lusting and desiring other things that aren't part of the goodness of God. If it's something that he said, no, you cannot have it, it's fornication or it's adultery, get it out of your mind. Mortify that desire within you. Do not lust. Verse 7, neither be adulterers as some of them, idolaters as it were some of them. And it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And that they, you know, it's, it can be much of a change to live in the liberty of Christ and the invisible God that we serve. And so our fathers there in the wilderness, you know, were so used to having an image of the Egyptian gods, uh, a type, a, shap, of, a picture of the God that they serve. And, but we serve a God who is everywhere and in everything. And we cannot seek to fill that desire of having an image of our creator with the image of other things, which he has forbidden. Verse 8, neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Fornication is such a sin that's, that's greatly in our world today. You know, I've got a young guy that works for me who says he's a Christian, and, you know, I had a conversation with him multiple times and because he, he's living with his girlfriend and that's fornication and he yeah. can't get it through his head. You know, but you know, he's, he was in a church his whole life and he didn't even know what that word meant. And that's the world today. Don't be a part of that. In verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So do not tempt the Lord your God. What does that mean? Do not seek to test God. Do not seek to say, well, if you, do, if, if you do this, God, then I'll do this. Do not think that, you know, if only good things happen to me, then, well, God must be real. No, you're going to get tested, you're going to get tried, but don't you go testing God. Amen. And last point, verse 10, neither murmur as ye... Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Murmuring. What is that? It's to, to speak against those in authority over you. That's, you know, us to, you know, this speaks to all, all ages and all people. 
You know, we all have people that we should look to that are our authority in, in Scripture, in the Word of God, and even just your fellow brothers in the faith. Do not murmur against, you know, the church leaders. Do not, and children, children, you know, don't murmur against your parents. Amen. Especially you teens, it's easy to do. It's easy to think that you know more about what's going on than, than your parents do. They've, they've been around a little bit longer. They, they've got some good ideas, you know. They, they've been tempted. They've been tried. They can tell you that going down this road over here isn't a, probably a very good idea. They've been through those situations. Um, so a question, you know, I just really want to put on, it's on my heart to ask you is, are you just part of the, the visible church? Are you just in a church? Are you just, you know, do you just say, I'm a Christian? Or are you endeavoring, as in First Peter, he says, you know, endeavor to make your calling and your election sure. Are you, are you about that? Is the faith of Jesus Christ, is it really grounded within you? Does it have root? Are you watering that, that little seedling that's growing on the ground that you are? Let's close. Um, I want to look at, uh, just read together, Psalms 95. Read, read together Psalms 95, verses uh, 6 to 11. Together. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me. Proved me and saw my works. Forty years long was I grieved with that generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Amen.